One of the small but enduring personal anecdotes that has stayed with me for several decades occurred at a cocktail party a couple of years into my New York City gig. Some of you have likely heard it before, even though it's just a little inconsequential throwaway story. Nevertheless, it has served as something of a touchstone for my professional life. Two hours into the party where I had arrived anonymously, a sophisticated, successful woman asked me what I did for a living. She had had more than a little bit to drink and had shared more of herself than perhaps she had intended, so when I told her I was an ordained Methodist minister, she became wide-eyed and speechless. The proverbial deer-in-the-headlights look. Her mouth fell open in complete bewilderment. When she regained her voice, she said, now mind you, I was 25 years younger, you don't look like a minister. (laughs) After a pause, she asked, don't you ever wear a collar? And by the inflection in her voice, I could tell she meant, Don't you think you should do everyone a favor by warning them ahead of time about the nature of your occupation? Early on, I learned that the sudden revelation of my profession in an otherwise anonymous setting could be quite jarring for people. Sometimes that had to do with a vague feeling that they had been caught with their pants down, so to speak. For others who lacked religious experience or perspective, especially here in the city, I seemed an oddly exotic specimen inducing incomprehension and stupefaction. As I said in Faith Matters this week, this tracks along the rapid cultural evolution of greater and greater numbers of people with no religious identification. If someone finds religion irrelevant, to her life, well then stands to reason the professional religionist has an irrelevant occupation. Sometimes I sense this judgment in forming a questioner's point of view. But then you know everyone who identifies as Christian shares something of a similar burden. From, from what I've heard from parishioners here, Christian New Yorkers are not inclined to readily self-identify in most environments, say, in one's workplace, for instance, although over time it might leak out. Or how about dating sites? I've had a lot of chats about that in recent years, the pros and cons of Christian self-disclosure. And more often than not, the cons due to stereotyped perceptions. Many want to let that out a bit later on when forming new relationships. On that front, I don't have any useful advice, just gratitude that I've graduated from the necessity of using OkCupid. (laughs) But this does cause me to reflect on what's at stake in our willingness to self-identify. 
A pithy bit of wisdom attributed to St. Francis goes like this. Preach the gospel, if necessary, use words, which emphasizes the content of our lives takes precedence over everything else. We demonstrate what we value by the wake we leave behind as we make our, our way forward in life's currents rather than whatever we blather on about in the meantime. As C.S. Lewis put it, what you do screams so loud I can't hear what you say, which is a crucially relevant bit of wisdom, especially for parents, not to exclude all the rest of us. But words do matter. How we align our words with our faith seems especially important today. We need to get braver about this, I think, in the main. Willing to take a risk or two. Let's not have the fundamentalists on the right or the left define what it means to be Christian, giving up on our language of faith for fear of being misunderstood. The quality of our love in action is our proof of what we mean. We should be able to speak to this confidently. So back at the cocktail party, after recovering her composure, our conversation settled into a rather deep sharing. Inevitably, my new friend asked me why I became a minister, which, as you might imagine, has a rather nuanced answer. I didn't get all theological on her, although God did come up. But this led to my asking her about her life and work and the different directions our lives had taken. And since God was a subtext, did she have any sort of spiritual life? Well, rather than answering that directly, after a, a thoughtful pause, she told me she wasn't very happy. Though she hadn't confided this to anyone recently, at the age of 45, she felt lost. Very successful, but lost. I could tell by the look in her eyes that she definitely now felt she had said way too much. And then quietly staring into her drink, she mused that had I worn a collar, she definitely would have avoided me. That was about as far as our conversation was going to go under the circumstance. She thanked me for this little unexpected chat. But then if only I had worn a collar, she would have avoided all this introspection. As it was, she said she was now headed home with more than just a few drinks in her system. And, oh, maybe I might see her on a Sunday. Well, as I said, that happened quite a few years ago. Eventually, she moved away, but not before. She wound up joining our ranks and becoming actively involved, especially in our outreach programming. One of the enduring riddles of the life of Jesus concerns his selection of his disciples, that core group of companions that followed him. We know a few details about the 12 men closest to him. We know there was a group of women who also were part of the inner circle. We know that as a whole, these friends didn't have a well-established pedigree. 
Some had a borderline relationship with the laws of government and religion. As the story is told, what do you suppose Jesus looked like when he called those first fishermen? I imagine he looked very much like the village carpenter. Rough hands, hard, strong, like the hands of fishermen. I imagine he had spoken with these men before, perhaps as they dried their nets at the end of a day. And in the course of conversation, Jesus did what he did better than anyone else. He related their lives to the life of the Spirit, to the things that matter most of all in the midst of the living of their days. Given how we've cleaned him up and mythologized him to a fairly well, building extravagant marble-encrusted buildings in his name and emblazoning, emblazoning his image in glittering mosaics, it's important to remember that he didn't appear out of nowhere, walking out of the sunrise, making sacred esoteric declarations while the heavenly chorus sang Alleluia in the background so that these fishermen might be sufficiently impressed to drop everything and follow him into the sunset and beyond. It seems Jesus was an uncommonly wise carpenter who found his voice as he grew in years until it became clear one day that when he spoke, you really had better listen because if you did, you wound up learning things about yourself and the world that completely altered the goal of your life. In the biblical stories, we hear him saying that the Spirit of God could be found in very homely settings, in the tale of a shepherd or a farmer or a tax collector, a businessman, a politician, even an embezzler and a prostitute. All the types of people there are, and in our day, those we could meet at a bar or cocktail party. His stories were the stories of everyday life into which everyone might read the content of their own lives. Well, coming to a place like this has great value, where when we're at our best, we uncloak the truth and make ourselves available to it. Out there beyond these walls is where you spend the great bulk of your time, where you work and go on dates and invest your money and eat and drink and make sense of your sexuality and use your bodies for good or ill, raise children, grapple with death. That's where God's claim on your life has its real impact. If God's call doesn't have meaning out there in the hurly-burly of your daily lives, it has not yet been heard. There's no more likely candidate to hear God's voice than you. In fact, so far as your own corner of the world is concerned, you are the only candidate. Of course, God's voice is heard in a wide variety of tonalities as our hymn that we just sang made clear. You can hear it in scripture is read and proclaimed. You can hear it in music. You can hear it in nearly any occasion through a vast array of mediums. 
You can hear it at a cocktail party, on the subway, walking along the sidewalk, taking a friend or lover to dinner. And here's a remarkable surprise. Sometimes we're the vessels for God's voice. And I don't mean that in the sense of the biblical prophet making grand pronouncements. I mean it in the sense of the quality of our love and care. Our ability to listen and question. Our willingness to be known authentically. To share who we are, what we think and believe with open hands and hearts. Hearing God's voice is closely allied to our finding our own voice. These are linked. I'm currently experiencing how my two-and-a-half-year-old granddaughter is learning to speak. It's clear that as she struggles to find the words she needs, she's making sense of who she is. And it occurs to me that this process never really ends. When I call out to little Adeline, she hears my voice and invariably finds her own. I think that's how it works with faith.